This afternoon's sermon is an, I guess you could call it an instructional sermon on the topic of the thousand-year reign, a very controversial passage in Revelation chapter 20. Um, for some of you, this might be a throwback because I preached this sermon in Abbotsford about a decade ago. So some of you might hear things that you go, hey, I think I've heard that before, which is a good thing. If you can tell me what uh, you all heard back then, you've got a very good memory. I was always told by elders that a sermon the second time round is like eating pea soup. Pea soup is better if it's warmed up. We'll see how that goes for this sermon. So Revelation 20 is what we're looking at. Uh, the readings from Daniel will be um, shortly into the uh, introduction of the sermon. So Revelation 20, the verses 1 through 10, is both the reading at this time, but also the text for the sermon. And they were reading God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized a dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we'll read from Daniel in a short while and following the sermon we'll be singing the stanzas of hymn 53. <clears throat> Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, guests, as we live in a global society where communication can happen almost instantly, we also seem to live in a time of constant war. There's always a war somewhere in the world that'll hit the news. The Middle East, Myanmar, Afghanistan, the forgotten wars of Africa, South Sudan was mentioned this morning. The Ukraine, yes, there's still a war going on there, on the border with Russia. There are so many wars. But there's one war that's worldwide. You might call it a war being waged at a super world level. It's the war between Christian and anti-Christian forces. It's a war that's generally not observable. 
we see the consequences, but we don't actually see the battles so often themselves. Just very occasionally, we do read of them in Scripture. One of those places is in the prophecy of Daniel. In his time, Daniel was actually a very important man. He'd been a chief advisor of the king during the Babylonian Empire. And in the first years of the Persian Empire, he actually served as prime minister. Daniel had influence with the world's most powerful men. And the prophet Daniel, when he's in his 80s, he reflects on the course of world history. He reflects on the role that God's people play in it, where things are headed. He's deeply concerned. He fasts and he prays for three weeks, requesting God to change the course of world history. And then after three weeks of fasting and praying, the angel Gabriel arrived. And among others, he told Daniel what we can read in Daniel 10. Let, let's turn to that just to see what, what Gabriel has to say about world history and how the passage of history takes place. Daniel 10, verses 12 through 14, we read, Then he, that's Gabriel, said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the king of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And in verse 20, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these princes, except Michael, your prince. What these verses make clear is that there's a spiritual side to the battles, to the wars of this world. It's a war that's generally not observable. We don't really see it, and many don't even realize it's being fought. But it is very real. Holy Spirit informs us by means of the Apostle Paul, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A spiritual war, and boys and girls, not in the sense of ghostbusters, it's a real war against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, against spiritual forces. And in the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John, we're given the opportunity to see something more of this war. Gabriel, in what we just read from Daniel, spoke of the angel Michael. In Revelation, we meet him again. We learn that he is the commander-in-chief of the army of God's angels. And the war of which I'm speaking, that's the war being fought by the Son of God. When he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He did that to rule this world. And when he sent out his spirit with Pentecost, he did so that the church might proclaim the gospel throughout the world and thus expand the kingdom of Christ. 
which means, and we sang of that this morning with one of our songs, we are in the Lord's army. We are all soldiers of the cross. Operation Kingdom of God began on Ascension Day, and the church was mobilized on Pentecost. Said our King, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it is, boys and girls, as you may sing, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. This afternoon, we'll pay attention to what God has told us about the end of that war. The defeat of God's enemy, arch enemy, the devil. So we listen to God's word with this theme, Christ and his loyal followers eliminate the deceiver of this world. And there's four things that we're going to run through. We'll look at the prophetic character of our text. And then we'll look at the imprisonment of Satan. That's the beginning of our text. The thousand year reign of Christ and the last battle. First, a bit of context, the prophetic character of our text. Because our text is actually one of the most discussed texts in the Bible. In North America, one's position on Revelation 20 is actually distinguishes you, identifies you as a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian? So are you pre-mill or post-mill? Pre-mill or post-mill, that's it. Our text plays an important role in in predictions on, on when the final judgment day will be and what will happen. Half a century ago, a man named Hal Lindsey published his thoughts in a book called The Late Great Planet Earth and another one called The Liberation of Planet Earth. And then two decades ago, Lindsay's ideas have been repackaged in the series Left Behind by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. And those positions on what's going to happen in the future are collectively known as dispensationalist. Now, most Reformed people won't be able to answer that question, pre-mill or post-mill. Lindsay's writings were responded to by Reverend Chair Borsma, that's the father of Reverend Hans Borsma, who used to be a pastor in Eldergrove, in his book, Is the Bible a Jigsaw Puzzle? He advocates a position that's often called a mill. And Reverend Cornelius van der Waal has written several books on the issue, advocating a position that approximates preterism. And a mill and preterism, those are the positions reformed people tend to. Okay, so what is this? Post-mill, pre-mill, a-mill, preterism. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the chronological order of the second return of Christ and the thousand-year reign. Very briefly, the pre-mill position is the second return is before a literal thousand-year reign. The post-mill position is the second return is after a literal thousand-year reign. The amill position is that there is no literal thousand-year reign. Actually, it should be called the nunc mill position because the thousand-year reign is now. And in regard to the thousand-year reign, preterism has that same position. Now, underlying this, one of the most fundamental questions is, how do you read Revelation? Revelation. 
As Reformed Christians, we place a great emphasis on the authority of Scripture. Dispensationalist Christians will do exactly the same. You'd then think, well, we'd stand united on this issue. But dispensationalists will argue that we are not taking Scripture literally. It's a bit like the debate between creationists and and theistic evolutionists, or they're actually called evolutionary creationists these days. But a creationist will say, if you take the Bible seriously, creation happened in literal days, and rightly so, for the creation accounts are historical accounts. Now, similarly, a dispensationalist will say, if you take the Bible seriously, Christ will reign for a thousand literal years. But the question is, is Revelation 20 a historical account, albeit of the future, the same way Genesis 1 and 2 are? You see, what dispensationalists fail to recognize is how there are different genres of writings in the Bible. There are different types of things. Not everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. Yes, not everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. For example, we talk about the face of God. We talk about God seeing things. But we also know that God is spirit. And thus he doesn't have a face. And he doesn't have eyes to see with. There are such things as figures of speech in the Bible. We don't just read the Bible. We need to understand how we are to read the Bible. Are we to understand what we're reading literally? Or metaphorically? Or figuratively? Or allegorically? Or spiritually? And that's a crucial issue where the Bible book of Revelation is concerned. Revelation itself opens with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. What's the point of Revelation? To tell us the things that must soon take place. So one might consider it a history lesson about the future. But it raises the question, why did the servants of Jesus Christ need to know the things that must soon take place? Two reasons can be mentioned. First of all, there's something that Christianity knows as the lesson of the fig tree. You know what time of year it is by looking at the trees. Bare branches indicate winter, buds indicate spring, green crowns indicate summer, colored leaves indicate fall. Well, the revelation was given to the church so that the church could tell what time it is in world history. Secondly, knowing the future is encouraging for the church. Because the events that are about to happen, they're going to be tough. And then it's good to know where it will all end. That all the suffering that is about to be undergone is going to be worth it. That Christ will conquer all. That a new creation awaits us. Revelation wants to be a book of comfort and of encouragement. So one, that the servants of Christ may know what is soon to happen. And two, so that those servants of Christ will not lose heart. And when we look at Revelation 20, we've got to keep those two things in mind. There's something else yet. Revelation opens also with these words. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Revelation is a prophecy. 
It's a Bible book that belongs to the same genre as Isaiah, as Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah. We're to read it as prophecy. Now, prophecy is not a detailed history lesson about the future. Helpful here is the image of approaching a mountain range. The further you are away from the mountain range, the less distinct the mountains actually are. Yes, Revelation is about things that must soon take place. The time is near, and Revelation is quite specific, just as Ezekiel's prophecies in relation to the exile were very specific. Now, I'm personally convinced that much of what we read in Revelation relates to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 after Christ and is about the close of the Old Covenant era. But Revelation does reach out all the way to beyond the last judgment. And that last judgment has not yet been, which means that the faraway mountains, they're kind of hazy. Something else that's important for understanding prophecy is that it often uses symbolic language. Um, Think of the description of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 1. He is said to have a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So do we have to picture the Lord Jesus with a great big sword coming out of his mouth, like literally? No, we don't. What we understand is that the words spoken act like a sword. And most of the symbols that we encounter in Revelation have their background in the history of Israel and the writings of the prophets. For example, that sword of the mouth, you'll already find it in Isaiah 49, verse 2. So our text has a prophetic character. It was written to inform and to encourage the servants of Christ. And the further removed from the moment of revelation, the more vague it will speak of certain events. And then there's symbolism in revelation. We've got to be careful about what we take literally and what we don't. So if we've got that context, we can now turn to our text. And we'll focus now on the imprisonment of Satan. Our text tells us of the role of the arch enemy of God and his Christ, which he plays in the war that's currently taking place. That arch enemy is referred to by four names. First of all, he's the dragon. In the cultures of many nations, especially in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, dragons stood symbol for everything that is contrary to what is divine. They were the symbol for evil and chaos. To convey the sense of the term, we could speak of the monster. So boys and girls, the devil is a monster. The dragon is described for us as the ancient serpent. Serpent, that's another word for snake. So here's a reference to Genesis 3, to Adam and Eve in paradise being deceived by the snake. God had declared war on the snake. Yes, it would bruise the heel of humanity, but eventually its head would be crushed by humanity. And Revelation 20 describes for us that head-crushing event. And then he's referred to as the devil or Satan. Devil, that's from the Greek name for for the dragon, and Satan, that's the Hebrew name. Hebrew and Greek are the two main languages in which the Bible was written. The Greek word for devil, 
diabolos, literally means somebody who cuts through, somebody who interferes, someone who creates a barricade, someone who causes confusion. And the Hebrew word Satan or Satan means accuser, someone who files a charge against someone else in court. So devil and Satan are words or names that speak to the character of this enemy of God. He disturbs the work of God and he accuses those who trust in God. He accuses them of unfaithfulness. Now this person is not literally a dragon. He's not literally a snake. But he is literally a person. He's a real person. We're not talking the personification of evil here. We're talking about the person, the individual who embodies evil. As to his being, he's a created angel. He's the leader of those angels who rebelled against God. We can read about that in Revelation 12. For the rest of the sermon, I'll just refer to him by his most common name, Satan. The Apostle John observes how Satan is put in prison. An angel comes, ties Satan up with a chain, throws him into the abyss. Now note, brothers and sisters, it's an angel who does this. Satan is an angel. He's just an angel. And the correction officer that God has put Satan in prison is also just an angel. There's this tendency in our world and also within Christianity to see Satan as some sort of counter God. Right? He's, he's the evil equivalent of Jesus. No, he's not. He's just an angel. Jesus is God. Satan is not. He's a smooth-talking angel, but no more. Satan's bound with chains. He's put in handcuffs. He can't get loose. And he's put in the abyss. An abyss that's a hole in the ground that's so deep that there's no way to get out of it. Caves, wells. They were often used to lock people up. Think of Joseph and his brothers. Jeremiah, Daniel in the lion's den. The abyss has a cover which is sealed and locked. No one can release Satan from his prison. He can't get loose himself because he's bound with a chain and no one else can release him either. The abyss is locked and sealed. Now the reason for this imprisonment is also made known. And here's the comfort element. To keep him from deceiving the nations. That's an important line. Crucial to understanding the new covenant era. The New Testament time. Our time. You see, after the fall into sin... And before the coming of Christ, Satan was allowed and able to deceive the nations. And he did. They were deceived. In the days of the great flood, for example, only Noah was found righteous. Everybody else had been deceived. After the flood, things looked bleak again. Even Abram's forefathers had become idol worshippers. And, and when Christ is on earth, Satan actually said to Jesus, here, I'll give you all the nations. Satan could do that, for all the nations were in his power. The only exception after Abraham was the people of Israel. And by the grace of God, they were God's people and they remained God's people. Everybody else followed the prince of darkness. But that's over now. When Christ said on the cross, it is finished, 
the demise of Satan began. Today, Satan cannot deceive the nations. For a thousand years, he's chained up, he's, he's behind lock and seal. The kingdom of God expands across the earth, and you'll find churches in all nations, even in Myanmar, North Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan. Satan is bound. He cannot stop the army of Jesus from taking the world by storm with the gospel. So what happens then during those thousand years? What happens in that power vacuum that's created by the imprisonment of Satan? Well, John is told the government of the world now switches to the Christ and to those who follow him. With the special mention of those who were martyred for the faith. And it's very specific. Those who were beheaded for the testimony. Two people that would have immediately sprung to mind for, John's, for the first readers of Revelation were these. James, the brother of John, because he was put to death by the sword. We read in Acts, and that suggests he was beheaded. And the second is the Apostle Paul. He was beheaded in Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero, it would seem. The first readers of the Revelation would have thought of them. And they would have thought of the many, many others as well. And John observes that those who were seemingly defeated on earth are actually the ones that are ruling the world. And those who are beheaded are mentioned specifically, but there's reference made to more people. There are also those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. The fact that the word and is used at the beginning here tells us this is a second group. This group consists of everyone who served the Lord Jesus Christ and was unwilling to join the anti-Christian forces. And they are obviously all believers. And John identifies them as those who had come to life, who had gone through the first resurrection. In that expression, the first resurrection, lies a key to understanding our text. Those who take part in the first resurrection, says John, will not be touched by the second death. Now we know that that second death, we know this from Revelation 20 verse 14, is the lake of fire. That's hell. That's eternal death. Those who partake in the first resurrection will not undergo the second death. So what's his first resurrection? Well, it marks the moment when a person comes to true life. It marks the resurrection from the death which came upon humanity with the plunge into sin. In his gospel, the apostle John records Jesus as saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's all talking about the moment of conversion, the moment when a person comes to true faith in Christ. So who are the ones who rule with Christ after Satan has been imprisoned? Everyone who has come to faith 
who shares in eternal life and who will not see death in all its fullness, who will not taste death. Now John wrote, they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The problem with understanding Revelation 20 is that many people will first determine when those thousand years begin and then understand the first resurrection in relation to it. But the other way around, that's actually much simpler. We've got to begin dating the reign with Christ for a thousand years to the moment of the first resurrection. And if you do that, it all makes actually quite simple sense. For any believer, their reign with Christ begins the moment they truly believe. The moment a person hears the Son, and hearing implies obedience here, he comes to life. That's the moment they begin to reign with Christ. Revelation 6 speaks of those reigning of being priests to God. And that ties in with what Peter writes, for example, in his first letter about believers being a royal priesthood. What this tells us is that those who reign with Christ for a thousand years are all believers and that they begin reigning with Christ the moment they come to faith. For that marks the first resurrection. Well, then it's quite simple, isn't it? Those thousand years have already begun. The thousand year reign of Christ is not some future event that still has got to happen, it has already begun. And so the the position that's faithful to the Bible is that nunc millennialism. The thousand year reign is now. When did it begin? Well, it began with Ascension Day. It began on the day when Christ was officially granted all authority in heaven and on earth. The day that Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It was then that God actually had Satan and his angels removed from heaven forever. That's Revelation 12. Ten days after that day, God poured out his spirit upon Christ's followers, empowering them to go out into all the earth. All those nations that had been deceived by the Satan were now to become the disciples of God's Christ. So there's a massive shift of power that took place on Ascension Day in Pentecost some 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of God began its advance against the kingdom of darkness and the gates of hell would not prevail. We're bursting into the kingdom through those gates of hell. Satan himself was bound. No longer could he deceive the nations. No longer could he prevent God's revelation from reaching the peoples of the earth. And how true it is. For if you look around in our world today, the unimaginable has happened. God's church is truly Catholic. It is universal. It is found in all corners of the world. And what does the rule of Christ and and his faithful followers look like? Well, it's the type of governing that sees the kingdom expand comes in two forms. It comes in the form of prayer. All Christ followers, both in heaven and on earth, will pray for the kingdom to come. And the second form is that of gospel proclamation, of outreach. We who do not worship the beast, we who do not bear its mark, we rule this world by means of that sword of the Christ. 
That sword that comes out of Christ's mouth, that's the word of God. That's gospel proclamation. Outreach, evangelism, mission, that's got to be the number two priority of God's people. It's number two priority because worship is the number one priority. We're called to be rulers with Christ and we rule by prayer and by proclamation. We reach up so that we might reach out. Now the thousand years haven't ended yet. We're still in them. Satan is not yet eliminated completely. That brings us to the final thought, the last battle. When the thousand years are over, when prayer and proclamation have reached their goal, Satan will be released from prison. And he will go out and deceive the nations again. Gog and Magog are mentioned. In Ezekiel, they are the symbol for everything that is anti-Christian in a political way. There's going to be an all-out assault on the church. Why? Why does God allow that to happen? Why can't there be just a smooth transition from the thousand-year reign of Christ into perfection? Why does Satan get a second chance at destroying everything that God has made? Well, Satan is released because God is a righteous God. He's fair. Satan's been in prison for a thousand years, a very, very long time. He's no longer able to deceive the nations en masse anymore. What has this time of imprisonment done to Satan? And God let Satan answer that question by releasing him. And it's clear, it will be clear, that Satan has not changed a bit. The first chance he gets, he's at it again, stirring up the world against God, against God's people. But this time, it goes nowhere. Satan and his following surround the people of God, but before an actual attack takes place, fire comes down from heaven and consumes those anti-Christian forces. The church comes under siege, but is protected by God. It reminds you of the days of, of Hezekiah when Jerusalem was surrounded by Assyrian forces. Things looked really bleak. Life was terribly tough in the city of God. But the Assyrians never attacked. God himself destroyed the Assyrian army. So the picture we get is Satan is released from prison to prove who he is. What that period exactly will look like, it's, that's not clear. This is prophecy. Prophecy about a mo moment that was far removed from the time when John actually saw it. So the mountains are just a hazy blue. But it is telling us that Satan's time will be cut short. God's righteous judgment comes. The measure of sin is full for Satan. And then he is eliminated entirely. He's thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. He's no longer in the picture. God's people are now forever free. And God's glory will establish itself on the earth. And so Christ and his loyal followers eliminate the deceiver of this world. When you hear this, isn't this comforting? We live in the last days. 
We've been living in the last days ever since Ascension Day and Pentecost. As we look about in our world, we realize we're, we're coming ever closer to that end. Satan has been bound. He can no longer deceive the nations en masse. Oh yeah, there's still people that do what Satan used to do. But it's nowhere near as massive as what it used to be before Pentecost. In all corners of this world, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. In all corners of this world, Christ is worshipped. But there is still a fearful time coming. When and how, we don't know. But when the time comes, we'll recognize it for what it is. We've been forewarned by God, but not only forewarned, we're being comforted by God. God's people will not be defeated. We won't see a return to the days of Noah in the sense that all is lost. On the contrary, it's Satan's time that will be cut short. Before his attack can even take serious shape, God will intervene. As for now, well, we live during the thousand-year reign. On Ascension Day, Christ was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth, and we are ruling with Christ by praying and by proclaiming. We're a church that reaches up in prayer so that we can reach out with proclamation. And so let's also be encouraged by this promise urged on to pray, to proclaim. For the rule of Christ is eternal. And we, who already have shared in the first resurrection, we're not going to see death, but we will live a glorious, everlasting life. Amen.